Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy and wow, do we have a fantastic show lined up for you today. The theme for this morning is organ transplantation, and the two organs in particular are kidney and heart. First up, we will be speaking with an old friend of the show. In fact, he first appeared in the studio many, many years ago as a medical student. Unclear about his direction in life. Should he become a GP? Should he do psychiatry? Now, he couldn't make up his mind. But then after a few years at the, at the School of Radiotherapy, he decided he wanted to be a surgeon. And today, Baby Doc is now Deputy Director in Cardiothoracic Surgery at a leading university hospital at which I work. Um, he's an expert in all things heart-related, having performed dozens of heart transplants, and he'll be in to tell us all about them. Associate Professor Rosemary Masterson is a senior staff specialist in nephrology, that means kidneys, at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. After having graduated medical school in Ireland, and just wait till you hear this accent, it's just fantastic, she then specialised in renal medicine at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. Along the way, she completed a PhD looking into kidney fibroblast function. And I didn't know the kidney had fibroblasts, so we'll have to ask her about that. And she became head of home therapies at Royal Melbourne Hospital, in particular um, the Extended Hours Hemodialysis Program. She's also very involved in the care of patients undergoing kidney transplantation, and this will form part of our discussion with Rosemary this morning. We are also delighted to have with us on the phone Belinda, who has had lived and living experience of uh, kidney transplant. And we're really keen to find out about her, just what she can and can't do since the transplant and what her, her journey has been like so far. So joining me, Dr. Mal, will be Nurse EpiPen, who regular listeners will know for her infectious positivity. You really are infectiously positive. And her patient-centred POV point of view in all things medical and uh, health related. So stick with us for the next hour of what really should be claimable professional development points all here on Radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. EpiPen, welcome yes, to the studio. Yes, thank you. Um, I, I was going to say something, and now you've completely <laughs> thrown me by talking whilst we're chatting, whilst uh, we were, we're doing the panel. By the way, for regular listeners of the show, you may notice also that the panelling, that is the producing of the pushing of the buttons, is exceptionally tight today, and that's because I'm not doing it. But Dr Nick is actually sitting behind me doing it, but he's going to be very, very quiet, even though we are going to stuff up lots of medically-related <laughs> facts, I'm sure. Um Hey, Penn. Yes. You were telling me in the green room yep. that there is big news hay fever wise. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. Okay. So um, it's hay fever season. I don't know. And it know goes it. from the 1st of October to the 31st of December it's in Victoria, their figures. Right. And um, it, one in five people suffer from hay fever in Melbourne, Victoria. We're in the hay fever capital of the world. We are. Yeah, so, and why? Do you know why? Pollen. Pollen, but why, why Why Melbourne? We've got lots of pollen. And yeah, it's but, cold. So you get where it starts from is you get the green grasses, yeah. especially rye grass. You get a, lot, a bit of warm weather, so they grow, oh. go crazy. Then we get some wind. Oh, it's the wind. It's the wind oh. that pushes all these pollen around Melbourne in particular. And that's hence it. that's why it's one of the highest um, areas for Hay fever. hay fever. Yep. So, what? Why do we? What's hay fever? Do you know? Do you remember? Do you, you, you yeah, know because you get it. I know because I get. It. Yeah, you get a during the months of October, November, and December. <laughs> but it can only be those months. Can't be any other months. No, not true. Um, yeah, you get runny nose, scratchy throat, runny eyes, bit itchy, and yeah, sneezing, 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 sneezing. Yep. So, um, and so I'm thinking about treatment. 
Can I just tell you my hay fever story? You know yeah, how go I on. You told me you wanted to say it on air. Go <laughs> ahead. No, because it's really interesting. Well, okay, off you go. So I was 42, I think. I know this because our kids were really young. Anyway, so we were in this, this um, you know, those farm state things you go to with kids and, you know, you pat the llamas and you feed the sheep. Anyway, and the lady who owned the farm said, who wants to go on a hayride? And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. So she puts us on the back of a tractor and, you know, she's got some hay that she's throwing out to all the animals. And um, she goes, well, I hope nobody's got hay fever. And I'm saying, oh, I don't have hay fever. Anyway, so she, she threw this bunch of hay and it blew back in my face and I'd never had hay fever before. And two seconds later, just eyes streaming, coughing, itchy, the whole hay fever thing. And since then, I've had hay fever. Mm-hmm. I actually got it from hay. Got it from hay. Yeah. Well, that's the um, etiology of your hay fever illness. Hay. Okay, so let's go back to some serious tre- talk. Yep. So treatment. And so we can get treatment from our GPs. Yep. And you can get also advice about how to what medicines you can take yep. from a pharmacist. Yep. But in particular, I'm going back to the GP because you might need a plan. Uh, and yep. sometimes hay fever can be linked with asthma. Yep. And because we had in 2016 mm-hmm. the thunderstorm asthma event, yeah, 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 yeah. we need to make sure that all asthmatics have a good plan and that um, you're well cared for and then you can soldier on. So what can we do about it? Um, So one of the things that you can do is possibly have an allergy test Mm -hmm. and you can speak to your GP about that Mm -hmm. and you can find out what you're allergic to. Also, which pollen, which cat hair. I'm allergic to bent grass. (laughs) What, not straight grass? (laughs) Really? Bent grass? What is that? I've got any noise. But I had it, had the testing because I'm an asthmatic. So bent grass. Anyway, that's it. People ask me for my allergy and I say bent grass. They think that's quite interesting. And um, But you can be desensitised oh, yeah. to some of these allergens that you're allergic to. So they give you a small dose and you see how you respond to it and they give it to you repeatedly over a period of three to six months, little injections sub into the top of your skin. Yeah, yeah. I was having dinner with somebody last night who had that, yeah. Yeah. So, but also new, hot off the press, but I think it's been around for a little while, mm-hmm. is a new drug called Oral Air. Has anybody heard of that? There's only you in the studio. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's the allure of radio, but um, Oral so, Air. So, Oral Air is a new drug. Oral so, air. at the... Um, at Monash University, Professor Menno van Zelm mm. and his team mm. have developed this drug. It's a sublingual, so it goes under your tongue, yeah. and you. But you have to take it four months before the hay fever season. So oh, you so primed it. You primed and you take it during it, right. and it's to absolutely reduce your symptoms. But it's for moderate to severe right. hay fever sufferers. Okay. Okay. So it's expensive because right. it's not on the PBS. So yeah. that's the pharmaceutical benefits scheme that yeah. subsidises some of these drugs. So it's about four hundred dollars for a three month treatment course. Do you, know, do, do you know how it works, or should we ask um, the professor on the show? I that... think we'll ask the professor on the show. I've never it's heard that it's before. retraining your immune system. They're the buzzwords on what I read. All right. Retraining. Yeah. See, I reckon the immune system is going to be the key to oh, everything oh, in the future. Like, if you look at these new anti-cancer treatments, yeah. they're all mad. They're yeah. all like, yeah. you know, antibodies. You know, yeah. so, and I've got one more tip. Yeah. So after the 2016 thunderstorm asthma event, yeah. um, the respiratory physicians at Melbourne Uni and the Bureau of Meteorology got together mm-hmm. and developed an app. So I downloaded this yesterday. What's it called? It's called... Um, Melbourne Pollen App. Oh, so it tells you how much pollen there is? It's fantastic. I'm, I'm getting it now. Yeah, it's right. got tips. It's got all, and it gives you the level of pollen oh, in a, a, by day. It's also got lots of information about, it's also got your thunderstorm asthma predictor. Oh, fantastic. I know. Melbourne Pollen App. Yep. Okay, I'm getting it. And I'm, uh, so I wonder if it's got, it's got notifications, like if... Yep. It's got all sorts of things. So get, just you can download it in the break. And um, so my homework or our homework from this session is to speak to the professor at Monash University, yes. ask him to come onto the Do, show. Yeah, and explain the immune system, well, yeah, really. You know, just, it's all those we MABs, school, drugs, like, I, the, you know, yeah. There was, they IgG, IgA, IgM. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, alphabet soup. I do, yeah, alphabet soup. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I cannot tell you, really, uh, from the bottom of my heart, how excited I am to welcome back into the studio Baby Dog. Hello. Good. Oh, hang on. <laughs> Paddling as good as ever. Jesus, 12 years. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Good morning, Dr. Mal. Listeners to the show will not be surprised that I bumped into Dr. Mal in the consultant's lounge at the large teaching hospital where we both work, which he apparently spends at least 95% of his professional week. I call it my office. <laughs> um, it's so great to have you back in the studio. Seriously, last time you were here, I mean, you've, you've been a surgeon for a while, but mm. you, you started on radiotherapy, what, years and years and years I ago? I was uh, actually an intern when oh, I started. Um, I think uh, we had a mutual friend, Penny Sillen, yes. who uh, was on the show, and uh, I knew her. So I came on the show, and those were the days where <clears throat> Dr. Zhivago and Sigmund McDuff, um, Tall Man. Yeah. They've all gone on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Only the stalwarts are here. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, you, despite our, um, I guess, our insistence, you left behind a career in psychiatry to become mm-hmm. a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Tell us, tell us about, no, seriously, tell us about that journey from deciding to do surgery and then getting into cardiac thoracic surgery, which is incredibly specialised. How did that happen? So, unfortunately, it's a pretty bland story in that, unlike most of our trainees these days who have to work their butts off to get into any form of training, the, I kind of fell into it mm. a little bit. I um, was doing general surgery. And I was an intern, as I said, I was doing general surgery. I came on your show. Mm. I met some amazing people, including a very amazing person who ended up becoming my wife. And she was a psychologist. Uh, And after I failed my first part surgery exam for the third time, I was uh, on a knife edge between um, continuing that or becoming a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, But she managed to convince me to keep trying. So I kept trying and I got it into the surgical program. And then I remember sitting in my interviews for Mm -hmm. cardiothoracic training and most of the interview ended up being about what radiotherapy was (laughs) and who I knew on the show (laughs) and what I did. Um, So we were instrumental in the Yeah, well, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Um, Whereas now the board trainees have to answer all sorts of terribly difficult (laughs) clinical questions and ethical issues about what they do. But I distinctly remember... The professor said to me, so you have a radio show, I see. And so that was a, that was a real bonus. Uh, and then from there, I did. Uh, I actually wanted to do lung cancer surgery primarily, which right. I still do, I must yeah. admit, and I, I really enjoy that. But at the end of my first year of training, I got seconded, much to my dismay, to the Alfred Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified because I'd done nothing about I knew nothing about transplant. And there yeah. were some very big hitters at the Alfred, yeah. um, amazing surgeons like Bruce Davis yeah, and Don yeah. Esmore, who were I was terrified of. Um, but after two years of being at the Alfred, I just really fell in love with the team idea of transplant. Mm-hmm. Transplant is such a team mm-hmm. game. I mean, mm-hmm. cardiothoracics is a team game, mm-hmm. but transplant in particular, because of the enormous number of specialists and and the allied health team that yeah. you work with in um, OT and social work and psychology, uh, nursing, physio, it's dietitians. It's a mm-hmm. massive, massive program that runs together, much, much more so than, say, urology or plastics or one of those programs. So I really enjoyed that team approach. And then, um, and just the idea of being able to take out, you know, take out a diseased organ, Mm. put it into the pathologist's hands and then put a new organ in Mm. from someone else. Mm. And that person gets better. And the, the, difference particularly in lung transplant between people that are wheeled into the operating theatre barely able to you know speak an entire mm, sentence mm. to four days later breathing normally was just absolutely mind-blowing and, mm. and in surgery you don't see that mm. that radical change so quickly in a lot of surgeries because people are recovering from the operation mm. heart transplant you don't see that amazing turnaround because people are recovering from the cut in the chest mm. and the and the um, rehab, but with lung transplantation, you, you just see this amazing difference. And I remember one patient, actually, when I moved to Fiona Stanley in Perth, but one patient saying to me three days later, she looked at me after she'd had her transplant and said, oh, my God, is this what normal breathing is like? You guys have no idea how easy it is. This is amazing. It could have been the steroids that she was on. But there, but she was, but no, that, seriously, wow. It's just an incredible thing. So, I, But I kind of fell into transplant. I hadn't, I didn't, as you know, I didn't sort of, 
come out of the womb going, right, I'm going to do heart mm. transplant like some people do. Mm. But um, I've really loved it, obviously, and, and uh, it's been such a rewarding career so far. So tell us with – well, uh, let's stick with lung transplants. What sort of conditions would people come to you with that would then require – a lung transplant. Yeah, so it's a changing marketplace. So when I started lung transplantation, it was we used to say it was forty percent um, COPD. So that's emphysema and chronic bronchitis, usually right. smoking related, but right. there are conditions that cause that as well. Forty percent right. cystic fibrosis, which listeners will know is a condition you're born with that causes mm. your all the organs in your body to sort of clog up and also fall apart at the same time. Mm. Uh, and then 20% was kind of mixed conditions. Pulmonary um, fibrosis is a common one. So that's um, a scarring of the mm. lung that can either be what we call idiopathic, which means we don't know why it's caused, or it can be caused by silicosis, meaning inhaled silicon mm -hmm. or asbestos or coal or one of those other sort of less common <laughs> allergies. So, for example, there's something called pigeon fancy as lung, mm -hmm. where people that own pigeons ingest a lot of um, pigeon dust, I suppose. Psittacosis, is that what it's called? Psittacosis, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, uh, where they ingest a lot of dust and that causes mm -hmm. lung to scrub. So that was sort of 40% COPD, 40% cystics and 20% mixed. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, with the amazing advances in treatment for cystic fibrosis mm -hmm. the gene technologies and the just the general overall improvement in their in their treatment the cystic fibrosis group has really gone away from lung transplantation which is fantastic mm -hmm. and we're now looking much much more split between the emphysema chronic bronchitis group and the the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the pulmonary fibrosis group, and, and then the smattering of other weird, weird, wonderful things. As the level of people requiring lung transplant who have got um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease from smoking declined with the with the decline in smoking, not particularly because you still see with cigarette smoking the after effect. There's a huge tail of right. cigarette smoking, and one of the interesting things is that. Uh, like your lung cancer risk, if you've smoked for a s small period of time, your lung cancer risk is increased your entire life. Even though, obviously, the further away you get from when you quit smoking, the lower that yeah. difference is, but it's still there forever. Right. Um, and the same with COPD. There's still that chance of, of COPD, right. COPD developing throughout life. So we probably see... Um, I mean, most patients that we see would have stopped cigarette smoking, you know, six to ten years before we right. get to their, before they come to transplant. And what level of disability do people have that they actually require a lung transplant? And you know, when other medical treatments just haven't been good enough to to keep them at home. And so well yeah. Enough. So it usually comes down to a quality of life issue. Yeah. So we, there's a whole lot of numbers that you can measure that tell you how well someone's lungs are working, what mm. we call pulmonary function tests. And the classic one of those, you'll remember, Dr. Mel, is the FEV1, which is how much air you can forcibly expel in one second. Yes. Yeah. Like that. <clears throat> so that that's one of the classic measurements that we use but it's actually the other thing that we use that's really important is something called a six minute walk test now a six minute walk test was a test that was invented for assessing um, amputee patients or stroke patients sorry right. to see how far someone can walk in six minutes right. but we use it in our treatment uh, in our assessment to see how far someone can walk in six minutes and mm. so people that have a low six minute walk test um, are usually it's a great reflection of how well they are in general but also what their quality of life yeah. is like because if you can only walk 300 meters in six minutes it's actually that's not much at all, and that's saying to you or saying to us, I can't get to the post box, I can't get down to the yeah. shops. Yeah. Some of these patients, you know, can't really even get around the house. They're on home oxygen, so they're the kind of factors that that lead us to lend to lead towards heart transplant or lung transplantation in those patients. And what about age? Do you have age limits? on who you offer lung transplants to? Yeah, so traditionally we did have an age limit. We, we, well, we do have an age limit, and it's a bit grey, I have to say, no pun intended. So the um, the overall age limit used to be about 65 was probably our cut-off for lung transplant. And when I went, certainly when I left to go to Perth, um, where I was for a decade, we had a 65-year age cut-off. But we've started to extend that and take these patients on a case-by-case -case basis. So we'll do, we'll transplant patients up to... I think the oldest we've done is probably 74. We did a 74-year-old single lung in elsewhere. The thing is, though, if you're going to be getting a transplant at that age, everything else has to be... Tickety-boo. Tickety-boo, spot yep. on. You can't be 74 with heart disease because they're the actual exclusion criteria. So if you're 55 and you've got coronary artery disease, you're not going to get a lung transplant. If you're 65 and you have no coronary artery disease, no kidney disease everything else is working well, then you will get a heart, you'll get a lung or heart transplant. In fact, I know somebody who was in their mid-60s who got a 
uh, lung transplant and still years down the track is doing really, really mm. well. Mm. You know, I thought at that time, gee, you, you know, mm. you're quite old. Um, in fact, now that I'm approaching that age, mm. I think, oh, you're quite young, mm. but he's mm. just doing phenomenally well. So could you just step us through how you take a lung, <clears throat> store it, and then put it in somebody's body, chest? Can I just hold you on that thought? Because you have just, you've now set up the, um, see, if you were writing a book, that would be the end of the chapter. Oh. And, and people are going to go, oh, what's the next chapter? Because we're going to play some sponsorship announcements. But Beautiful. But when, when we come back, Baby Doc will tell us the exact answer to that question. Excellent. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. In the studio we have Baby Doc, cardiothoracic surgeon extraordinaire, and he's just about to answer the question, which was EpiPen, as you're taking a photo on here again. <laughs> what was the question you asked about? Um, about So a lung is a kind of collapsible thing. If you take that from a body, from a donor, um, and you put it in an esky, or how does it, does it, and how do you reinflate it, and how the Dickens is this done? Dr. Chris. <laughs> how the Dickens, how the Dickens. Um, so, look, it's actually not that complicated. We go to the donor hospital, uh, whichever, wherever that is, and essentially we, uh, usually in conjunction with liver surgeons and kidney surgeons and other surgeons who are taking other organs, um, and we basically um, flush a preserving solution through the arteries that go to the lungs, um, so that the lungs are full of this preservative solution, oh, okay. which washes all the blood out, or it washes all the donor blood out uh, and fills it with a, a preserving solution. And then we essentially remove the lungs from the heart by cutting through the arteries, veins, and the bronchi, which are the breathing tubes, that hold them into, into the body. We then uh, wrap them in plastic bags and ice and put them in an esky, just a standard Bunnings esky, and then they're transported either by plane, planes, trains, automobiles to the uh, recipient hospital, which might be the Alfred, because uh, that's the only hospital in Victoria that does heart and lung transplantation, but the Fiona Stanley Hospital over in um, Perth, um, St Vincent's in Sydney and Prince Charles in um, Brisbane all do it. So there's the four centres that do heart and lung transplantation. So they'll go into that. And then when uh, the at the receiving hospital, the um, implanting hospital, then the recipient is on the operating table. Um, they have a slightly different approach, but we do, at the Alfred, uh, we do two what we call anterior thoracotomies. So that's an incision that goes from just next to the breastbone out towards the armpits basically, uh, on each side. Now, traditionally, we used to cut through the breastbone, do something they used to call a, a delightfully named clamshell incision, and you would do all the way from one armpit to the other sure. and then sort of open the chest like a flip-top, like the old Colgate flip-top lid um, commercial. Uh, and that allows you to see everything in position. And what happens is the anaesthetists have put, have put a tube, a breathing tube, into the patient's airway, um, which allows them to ventilate just one side at a time. So you ventilate one. So usually what will happen is the recipient will be breathing on one lung and the other lung will collapse down, as you say, um, Epi, and then we will then cut through the um, artery vein and bronchus in the recipient. You, obviously, we have to clamp them first, otherwise the patient you, you bleeds to death. But you cut them down, and then you can then just simply sew the two ends back together again, the donor end and the recipient end. So would that be three major things, the bronchus, the vein, and the artery? Correct, yes. Yeah. So okay. it's three on each side. Okay. Um, it sounds very straightforward, um, but actually getting access to those um, getting access to those recipient vessels with a beating heart and ventilated lungs can be very difficult. Very deep in the chest. Very deep in the chest. And the other problem is that the physiological or what we call the hemodynamic shifts that occur when you clamp the main pulmonary artery and the pulmonary vein um, can be very difficult to manage. Not for me, because I'm doing sewing, but for the anaesthetic team and then obviously the intensive care team and the respiratory physicians afterwards, because there's a lot of fluid shifts that go on. Because if the heart is used to, or the, the heart is used to beating 60, 70 times a minute, five litres of blood through a large 
pulmonary vascular system, mm-hmm. which has a low resistance, so it's mm-hmm. like a big, big area of blood vessel, mm-hmm. and then you suddenly cut that in half because you put a clamp on it, then all of that blood mm-hmm. is going through a much higher resistance circuit, and so that can cause the heart to fail and the lungs can start to fail and those kind of things. So it can be a bit dicey, um, and that's why there's a lot of art to the to mm-hmm. making decisions about how you do it, the, uh, the steps that you take. So. And then- Oh, and then do you slowly inflate the lung when the anaesthetist unclamps the second tube? So it's a double tube lumen ETT tube. So they un- and just slow, or do they just? No. So we just we just uh, quite quickly because you want you've got to kind of overcome that um, collapsing pressure in yeah. the lung, in that the native lung has. So you open them up and then flush thing and then and then try and flush out. Unfortunately, there's always the lung, those blood vessels are full of air. Even though you've sort of sort of flushed them with preserving fluid, there's still a lot of air in there. So you try to get rid of all the air at the same time. And, um, and then we move to the second lung. So the patient then will be breathing on the new lung yeah. for, the, for the second half of the operation. Wow. Which wow. Is, yeah. Wow. So, and you will obviously look for signs of acute rejection at that. Yeah, so, so acute rejection is extremely uncommon oh, um, yep. because of the cross-matching process mm-hmm. that's so yep. advanced now, talking about, immunate, talking about the immune system yeah. as you were before. The, our ability to understand the immunology of lung tra- transplantation yeah. has changed so dramatically. And I think our next guest probably has more insight into that than I do. But the, um, the matching is so good now that acute rejection is almost unheard of. What we do see really, fortunately, is what we call primary graft dysfunction, and the kidneys will, will also suffer from this, which is not a rejection, but it's a failure of the lungs to, or the heart, or the kidney, or the liver, to take up the slack, or to, to pick up where they left off, if you like. Why would that happen with the lungs, sir? Well, I always say to patients, they just, lungs just get, they just get banged around a bit, not, not yeah. literally, but, yeah. you know, metaphorically speaking, I think that that transition from one um, homeostatic state in in the donut through to the recipient can be can be challenging for the organs and and again it comes back to those hemodynamic yeah. shifts of the lung that we take from the donor might have been used to an arterial pressure right. of 30 and now it's got an arterial pressure of 50, you know, yeah. which is normal for the recipient, but not normal for the donor. So then the, the, the lining of the lung blood vessel starts to freak out because it's under this huge pressure yeah. and it gets leaky and the lungs fill up with fluid and that kind of thing. And do you tend to do one lung transplant for recipients or do you usually, do two? Usually two, <clears throat> um, because a lot of the conditions, particularly with patients with COPD and some of the weirder Stomach. positions, mm-hmm. they have infection like they'll be mm-hmm. colonized with and the cystic fibrosis in particular mm-hmm. are colonized with fungal infections right. or something called pseudomonas which right. is a nasty drug and if you take out one lung only then the, go to the other one. fungus just fly, fly goes oh hey happy times flies yeah. into a new yeah. lung, into the new lung and um you sort of wasted it so usually double though we do do singles for these these silicotic um anthracotic cytocotic patients that we talked about before and how long would it take generally to do a double lung transplant i would say i don't usually get much change out of six hours um and um, it's a long operation yeah it is a long operation yeah uh but really really well going really well maybe four um Mm -hmm. badly up to 12 um and that is primarily due to how hard it is to remove the the remove the the recipient's lungs from their body i mean how do you i mean You've got somebody's, literally somebody's heart and lungs in your hand. Yeah. So you've got someone's life in your hand and you're concentrating for 12 straight hours. Yes. Or do you take breaks? I take breaks, yeah. We usually take so breaks. Take, okay. so, so the, you know, I did on, um, on uh, Thursday, I did a nine-hour heart operation, yeah. which was not a transplant, but we did a nine-hour heart operation. Yeah. And I probably went from eight till three before I stopped. And then, and then once the sort of, you've done all the stitching, a lot of that last couple of hours is waiting for the bleeding to settle down because we have to the patients get very very leaky blood vessels and very thin blood because of medication we give them or just the stress of the surgery and there are a lot of different um, medications that the anaesthetists and the hematologists have to sort of run into the patient and all we can do is wait with the patient on the operating table often with lots of gauze and things in that are sort of packet and so that's a 20-30 minute thing and with transplant in particular once the heart or lung is in or the heart in particular, you put the heart in and you then go off for 45 minutes to let that new heart settle in, settle in while, yeah. while you're on the heart-lung machine. So it's not doing any work. It's just sitting in the body and we can all go and have a cup of tea. And um, Although no one drinks tea anymore, but you can all go and have a cup of tea. We call it a cup of tea. <laughs> cup of tea and a cigarette and then uh, come back and, uh, and finish off. <laughs> so, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. so no, I, I um, assisted a few cardiothoracic surgeons mm-hmm. at the Alfred, and one of the most interesting operations I ever saw was for a person that had a pigeon chest. Mm. So the chest points out, and they cut the sides of their ribs like a chest plate, mm. flipped it over, mm. and sewed it back in the other mm. way. Yeah. And so therefore they didn't have this protruding oh. chest, and it was pushed in the other way. But mm. And... This guy was thought it was the best thing because aesthetically looking, he didn't look like this funny sort of person. But yeah, yeah. and are are you doing some creative surgery like that these days? Yeah, so we do. The chest wall surgery is very, very challenging for a lot of in a lot of ways because it often doesn't work very well. Um, And that operation we don't tend to do anymore for some. I think because it's so invasive. So you know, people want to move away from that sort of. But it was a great operation. I used to watch it at the children's actually, where they just kind of flip the sternum upside down. It's a fascinating operation. Um, I've just uh, there's there's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, because you know it's a journal I read. You know, um, all the time, cover to cover. cover. Well, there's a few copies of it in the doctor's lounge. Is there right? Yeah. Um, and I just, no, just I just happened to get an email about it today. I thought, oh, I'll have a look through it. About five minutes, and there was an article about transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Mm. Now, would you people, as in cardiothoracic surgeons, <laughs> as a group, would you be doing less of those valve replacements now that radiologists are getting into the whole catheter thing of replacing valves? Yeah, definitely. So we've sort of travelled a little bit away from transplantation at this point. But, um, yeah, so TAVI, we call it TAVI in, in Australia. What does TAVI stand for? Trans-arterial valve insertion. Don't ask me why. The, American, the four-letter acronym. The Americans call it TAVA, which is trans-aortic valve replacement. Um, but ours is more accurate. Mm. So that's done by cardiologists, right. not, not by radiologists. Oh, cardiologists. And, um, yeah, definitely. So we're just on the cusp, I think, of seeing um, that really take off. And yeah. the Alfred released a press release um, last week saying that they'd done their 1,000th TAVR or TAVI. 1,000? Yeah, it's a great... And look, it's a fantastic technology. It is going to take away, you know, a significant proportion of cardiothoracic surgeons' work, so my work. Um, But I think, uh, uh, you know, it is a great technology. And for patients who are particularly higher-risk patients and older patients, so and I'm I'm using older as in anyone over the age of 70, really, Mm. um, it's really... That's what we're saying. (laughs) It's a fantastic um, option. Um, And, yeah, definitely, it's it's, it's groundbreaking technology. Yeah, I just was reading about it thinking, wow, you can replace an aortic valve through a Catheter. But you know, you know, you know. Um, I know your interest in sort of the ethics and philosophy yeah. of, of science, yeah. and it's interesting that this. I did the first one in Victoria. I was involved in the first one in Victoria of oh. this technology, but that was in two thousand and seven. Right. And so it's in the New England Journal of Medicine as being these new this new technology <laughs> fifteen years later. It's just interesting that these things take such a long time yeah. to to get through. To be fair to the New England Journal editors, it was actually looking at a way of preventing uh, post stroke, heavy stroke. Yeah, 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 because you can get little emboli that little bits and pieces that float off the valve that can float up yeah. to the brain. So they're looking at ways of preventing yeah. that. So, um, no, so it's a very well-established, yeah. very well-established um, technology and a great technology too. Baby, we're going to, I mean, you're going to hang around for the rest of the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, but we're clearly we're going to have to have you back now that you're mm. back in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and the risk is that you'll be so popular you'll take over my show. Well, so. that's what happened in 1997, <laughs> no from well, what I can I, remember. I, I had to send you off to, to Western Australia. <laughs> Otherwise, take over my show. Um, we're going to play some music, a few sponsorship announcements, and then we will be back with uh, Associate Professor Rosemary Masterton. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Associate Professor Rosemary Marston, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Pam. <laughs> very well. Thanks for having me along this morning. Yeah, great, mm. great. So you're a renal physician. I am. I'm a renal physician at the Royal Melbourne. At yep. the Royal Melbourne Hospital. How did you get into renal medicine? <laughs> <laughs> Remember she said don't ask? I said don't ask. She could do a quick one. Um, okay, so I trained in Ireland initially, and um, even when I was a medical student, I really enjoyed my rotation in nephrology. I think it's because it's so multifaceted. Uh, there's so many different conditions, common and rare, that can cause end-stage kidney disease. And then there's the whole management of end-stage kidney disease. Because the kidneys are probably the most important organ in the body, controversial. (laughs) (laughs) When they go amiss, um, lots of things happen. So you get cardiovascular disease, anemia, bone problems. So we've got to be on top of all of that. So it's academically very stimulating. 
But also, um, I think we're going to talk to Belinda, and she's an example of how you really are with the patient along a whole journey from the time they're you know, diagnosed, getting them across the line for dialysis, then the highs of having a transplant and maybe mm. having to have another one. So it's a whole patient kind of journey that I enjoy as well. And also, um, I think, as Chris said, working in a really a multidisciplinary team is crucial. Rosemary, could I ask you to speak a little bit close to the microphone? Because yeah, sure, it'll sorry. make Dr Nick's job a whole lot easier and I don't want him to be sorry, stressed Dr. out. Sorry, Dr Nick. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I always um, find the kidneys just like a black box for me. So my understanding of kidney is basically uh, blood in, uh, <laughs> urine out. Is that correct? That's simplistic, yeah. And but so, that's, you're a cardiothoracic and, surgeon. Correct, yeah. And I, and I Keep it simple for And yeah. I deliberately chose to do all my work above the diaphragm, so I yeah. wouldn't have to be involved with this. But the other thing is, is, is renal um, nephrology, the study of nephrology and the, the four, four, six-year training program you go through, is most of that time learning the difference between nephrotic syndrome and nephritic syndrome and trying to work out why they had two conditions <laughs> oh. that were so similarly named. Oh, Lord. See, that's yeah. a very funny joke, but only the doctors in the audience would get it. <laughs> That's pretty basic stuff. <laughs> I'm pretty basic. Um, we spend a lot of our time um, looking at the reasons why people get nephrotic or nephritic syndrome and then managing it. But yes. Can I ask you another question? Oh, sorry, um, Epi. No Can I, I, you know, when I was in medical school, we had this nephrologist come teach us about how the kidney makes urine. Mm -hmm. And there's this thing called the countercurrent mechanism uh, no yes because i went through this yeah. like i spent a week trying to understand this mm -hmm. and it just did not make sense yeah. like the kidney there's just no way logically the kidney made urine from blood could you explain to me in 30 seconds how the kidney makes urine from blood okay so the ki kidney is made up of a million little filtering systems called mm. glomeruli mm. and basically there's a tiny little blood vessel um, that um has obviously blood comes through there and there's a membrane that keeps some of the good stuff in um, into the blood and then pushes out um fluid and waste products like potassium and then there's a very fine system um that is you know adjusted second by second really? which allows the body to you know reabsorb elements that it doesn't have enough of, say potassium, or to reabsorb more fluid if somebody's um, dehydrated, but if they're overhydrated to excrete more fluid. So it's it's a very complex system and it's it's difficult to sort of explain it, but um, that's why the kidney really is the king organ. It does so many amazing things. The king of organs. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> you can see Chris is snarling over there in the corner. So let's go back yeah. a few steps. So it's often called a silent disease, kidney disease, yeah. chronic kidney disease disease how would somebody present or how would you like to I know you're passionate about this area mm -hmm. how would people um, know if their kidneys weren't working very well so um, Pen, unfortunately um, kidney disease is often a very silent disease until you might have lost up to 90% of kidney function now, you can present with an acute kidney injury, and in that case, you will have a lot of symptoms like nausea, vomiting, itch. Um, but most people, it's a very insidious uh, disease, and um, they often just you know, feel tired, and they may not know they have kidney disease until it's too late and they have a blood test. Mm. Um, and um, it's often their family members that notice that they're feeling tired mm. or that they're off their food. And it's not until you put somebody on dialysis or give them a transplant that they say, wow, I really was feeling poorly. But, you know, people put it down to just busy lifestyle mm. or other things. Um, but in fact, yeah, it can, you really can present quite late. Um, so, I, I, you know, I would have thought that a lot of people just gets picked up sort of incidentally on a blood test. Like yeah, they, absolutely. somebody goes to their GP for a routine blood test yeah. and you know, their kidney function comes back as impaired. And that's a really important point because there are certain at-risk groups, so particularly people with um, <clears throat> blood pressure, diabetes is the biggest cause of end-stage kidney disease. Di diabetes, right. Yeah, so that is causes almost 40% of um, end-stage kidney diseases attributed yeah. to diabetes, with another 12% being due to hypertension. So there are things that, you know, are very common in the community. Yeah, yeah. And if picked up early, there's a lot we can do to actually ameliorate or prevent, um, you know, progression to end-stage kidney disease. Can you reverse it? Like, say you pick up, somebody's got some impaired kidney function. Can, can they take tablets or do something to their yeah. lifestyle to, to regain kidney function? Um, 
it's it's hard to actually regain kidney function, but we can certainly um, arrest progression. And um, there's actually be a, a new family of drugs which are very exciting, which have just come on the PBS called the SGLT2 inhibitors so or SGLT2. Um, But so these are drugs that were originally devised for diabetes. um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, in large um, multinational trials, um, one of the endpoints was, um, you know, progression to end stage kidney disease. And they found to their surprise that these drugs were amazingly protective for the kidney. So they then went on to do kidney specific trials, which have shown that these drugs can actually reduce the risk of developing end-stage kidney disease by up to 40% in somebody with early stages. So that, in addition to the angiotensin receptor blockers, which have been around for over 25 years, I think will change the face of a lot of kidney disease. Um, So we have a patient of yours, Belinda, who's had a kidney transplant, and um, I think she's going to join us on the show. So she's... Belinda, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Hello. 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 Hi, Belinda. Hi. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Yourself? Yeah, good. Um, could good. you tell us why you had a kidney transplant? Yeah, I actually, well, I really wasn't sure what was going on. I actually thought I had a virus, I got told by my local GP. And um, that was 16, 16, 17 years ago, and I wasn't getting any better. And as Rosemary said before, about all the different symptoms, about being tired, vomiting, um, put gaining weight. Um, and then I sort of got rushed to emergency and found out I was in renal failure. Goodness. Yeah, which, um, but there were, as she said, there was no symptoms up until pretty much a week prior to me going into mm. hospital. And how long have you had your kidney transplant, uh, your new so kidney? I'm, my new kidney, well, I've gone to my second transplant now. My first one lasted 12 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and, yeah, and then this one I'm on to my fourth year this Christmas. Terrific. And, yeah. and So did you get that during, did you say this Christmas, did you get a kidney on Christmas? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's what a great gift, hey? It was a great gift. Wow. And how's your life since having a new kidney? How do I, sorry, I'm oh, sorry. How, sorry how, how is your health since having a yeah, new kidney? Yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. It's, you know, you don't realise how tired you are yeah. until, you know, you do get that kidney in and, you know, it's just, yeah, a different life. It's a different lifestyle. What, what can you different. What can you do now, Belinda, that you you couldn't do before? I was just always really tired, so I had no energy. You know, I wasn't going out much. Where now my life is back to normal. I can travel. Um, where before, I suppose I really couldn't that much because I was limited to what I could do. Mm. Um, go back to work, which is great. Um, you know, I suppose with being on dialysis, it affects people differently. Like, unfortunately, with me, it didn't really agree with me that great, so I was vomiting quite a lot, passing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, unfortunately, the treatment didn't do me too good. So, you know, when I finally did get a transplant, mm. it just made, you know, the world a difference. You don't realise how sick you are mm-hmm. until... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what sort of tablets do you have to take and what sort of treatment do you need to, to keep the transplant going. Yeah, so obviously now I was on dialysis, but now I'm just on anti-rejection tablets, mm-hmm. um, which I take um, and steroids, mm-hmm. um, which pretty much keeps the kidney going. So I'll take those, you know, for the rest of my life. Fabulous. So you're a real advocate for donor organ donations, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And I can't tell you how many of my friends like in the last sort of 15 years because I was unaware about what renal disease was until really myself until I sort of went in with what I had and I, you know, I think half of my friends have already signed up to be organised. <laughs> what about the other half? Yeah, what about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got all my friends signed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Donating blood all the time and everything now because, it, you know, because people just aren't aware. Yes, yeah. Yeah, great. I want to ask you, Belinda, do the tablets that you take, do they have much in the way of side effects? Um, no. When I first started taking them, you know, 100 years ago type thing, they were. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, no, my body's just so used to them now. Um, and it's only, I suppose, if I do get sick sort of in between with the steroids, the pregnisolone, like if you're putting that drug up. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's lack of sleep and everything like that. Mm. And, you know, but otherwise, no, my body's all good with them. I've been really lucky. My um, body really takes well to the medication. Great. Great. So um, thanks very much for joining us, Belinda. And um, 
yeah, I hope you can listen to the podcast at some stage because you're not listening to it live. So thank you very much for your time. And, and make sure, and make sure those other half of yes. friends sign up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Belinda. Bye. What a strong advocate for uh, renal transplantation. So, Rosemary, can I ask a quick question? Sure. Um, so, obviously, Belinda's a great, had a great outcome, and she said her first kidney lasted 12 years, mm-hmm. and now she's on a second kidney. Could, how many times, well, I suppose two questions, how long do kidneys usually last in a, in a, a recipient, and how many times is it feasible to have a new kidney transplant? Yeah, um, so it is very variable, um, Chris. So the average... Um, kidney would probably last, you know, 10, 12 years. But, um, you know, we have patients who have had transplants for 30 years. So there's a lot of things that would influence that. The quality of the organ, usually live donor transplants will last longer. The age of the donor, um, whether they've had rejection episodes. So the commonest cause of end-stage kidney of, sorry, failing transplant is chronic antibody-mediated rejection. Mm. And there's a lot of th- factors that influence that, but part of it is, you know, poor adherence with medication, with mm. time. Mm. Um, but we, so we, um, we have had patients who've had four transplants, right. mm. but they have to remove, you know, the, the pre-existing transplant um, to make room. Right, because you can't just go to the other side. You so can, you... so you could have, so yes, you can do, have two transplants in. So Belinda's other transplant is still inside you and she's got a new transplant on the other side mm, mm. but if please god she won't need to but if she needed another transplant they would very likely have to remove yep. that yep. so people kind of at any one time can have four kidneys yeah. in because there. i think the difference with kidney and heart and lung yeah. is when i do a heart or lung transplant yep. i'm taking out the heart or yes. lung and putting the Replace, new organ yes. back in exactly the same position. Yes. But my understanding, and I've done nothing to do, never done renal transplant yes. surgery, is that the new kidney sort of isn't like, you don't take the old kidney out and plug the new no, one in, you put it somewhere else. Yeah, so the, the your, your old kidneys are in your back, basically, yeah. and the new kidney is actually plugged into a blood vessel in your groin, you know, at the top of your groin. So it's your. So I've always wondered, does that mean that patients that have a kidney transplant need to be particularly careful about their you know, their abdomen and, like, can't do contact sport and that kind of thing? Or do we not um, worry? Is it yeah, not a problem? No, yeah, we probably would advise them not to do rugby or something. Um, but we have had patients, you know, who have done fencing and various things, but you, they mm. have to have a special guard sort of, you know, sometimes to mm. protect the kidney. Um, but most most uh, patients can do, you know, whatever sport they want. But Great. we do encourage Great. them not to do too much contact sport. Um and Dr. Rosemary, could you just... I've got two burning questions. Sure. Indigenous people mm-hmm. and COVID. What effects has COVID had on renal function? And Indigenous... Why are Indigenous people more likely to get kidney disease? Yeah. So it's very sad. Um, indigenous people have got, like, about six and a half times the rate um, of the general population of um, at reaching end-stage kidney disease. The commonest cause um, in the Indigenous population is like the rest of the population, is diabetes, but also um, even in the absence of them having diabetes, they have a much higher rate of reaching end-stage kidney disease. It's sort of multifactorial, but part of it is, you know, they, they are born with a smaller number of nephrons. They're not meant to necessarily, um, you know, they're, they're not... The, the Western lifestyle doesn't really suit their metabolism, and so a lot of it is related to being overweight, having smaller nephron numbers, and that some of that's tied up with prematurity. And then on top of that, they've much higher rates of infections. So there's lots mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. things that go into the, that. And probably, you know, being diagnosed late, not having you know proper management of um, their diabetes and their blood pressure. Um, and, you know, they're not transplanted at the same rate either. And so that's a major issue that, you know, is we're trying to address. Mm. Um, mm. COVID, you asked me about, that has had a huge impact. Um, uh, uh, well, certainly on transplantation. So in 2018, we probably in the country, there were over a thousand renal transplants performed. And then 2020 was about 850. And then in 2021, there was only 650. And that was particularly marked in Victoria because obviously we had most cases of COVID. Mm. This year has really improved and it's really picking up. So we're hoping that, um, you know, we're going to get 
back to normal. Um, the other thing that majorly impacted um, our patients, obviously, even if they're vaccinated because they're immunocompromised, uh, they don't necessarily mount a good immune response. So we had quite a lot of quite sick patients mm. um, who got COVID. Mm. But on the other hand, um, with there's the advent of new antiviral treatments, and we've really seen that that is helping um, our patient outcomes. Mm. Um, and it was a real challenge with people on dialysis as well, trying to separate people who had had COVID from the rest of the dialysis unit. And, had, you know, so oh. it was um, uh, just a logistical nightmare. And the nursing staff were just amazing mm. the way they organised it all. And you have dialysis maybe three times a week for somebody with... Uh, chronic kidney disease? Yeah, so there's different um, options. So 85% of people really would do hemodialysis. So that's where um, blood is taken out of one of a big blood vessel in your arm usually and then put through a special machine which removes the waste products and then you get the clean blood put back in again. There's also something called peritoneal dialysis which is um, where there's a membrane beneath your muscle wall um, which can be used to um, pull out, you know, to remove waste products, again, with a tube kind of going in just um, near where your, um, your belly button is, mm. just there. Mm. So in hemodialysis, the vast majority of people will do four or five hours three times a week. Um, but the, we really encourage people to do longer hours dialysis. And about in about 20% of people in the country, and it varies from region, will do home hemodialysis. So they do their own dialysis at home. And a lot of these people do what's called nocturnal dialysis. So they put themselves onto a dialysis machine um, and do eight hours uh, three times a week. So I've just got one last tip. So if anybody could, we're about to finish <laughs> the show. No, 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 yeah. where to go for help? Yes, good question. So your GP, always your GP. I plug GPs nonstop. But also there's the Kidney Health Australia that's website. Okay. Yeah, that's an excellent website. I'd really encourage people I to agree. look at that. I agree. 1-800-454-363. Well done. And thank you so much, um, Rosemary. That was such a beautiful segment talking about kidney disease, kidney transplantation. And you explained to our surgeon over here in the corner how <laughs> the king of organs actually yep. works. You have been listening to Radiotherapy here on Triple R with me, Dr. Amal. We've welcomed back into the warm embrace of the Triple R family, uh, Baby Doc, uh, Associate Professor Rosemary Masterton. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.